0: Hello, and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is author, publisher, researcher and priestess, Sarita Diesti. Sarita has been teaching and writing on a wide range of esoteric subjects for over 20 years, with her work being published in both mainstream and community magazines, websites, and an impressive amount of books. This episode was inspired by one of these works, Isles of the Many Gods, which is a comprehensive A to Z of the many pagan gods and goddesses worshipped in Britain from the Iron Age to the late Middle Ages. We talked about some of those deities, their origins, and nature, along with Sarita's lifelong interest in exploring the many pathways of experiencing magic, mysticism folklore and religion. Lovely stuff indeed. Enjoy! Sarita, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello Rick, thank you so much for having me tonight.
0: Not at all. I think of the guests that I've had on the show so far, you've written the most books, so um, (laughs) yeah, it's very impressive. To start off with, just tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the esoteric.
1: Um. I lived in Cape Town in South Africa as a child, and folklore is very much part of South African culture. There's so many different um, people from different parts of the world, different tribes, different indigenous influences, that there's always something new to learn. So I guess I grew up with lots of um, types of folklore around me, and I had some um, mystical experiences as a child that led me to start reading voraciously as a child trying to explain those experiences to myself and um, eventually I moved to the UK and you know just continued that search here and there's just so much folklore and so much history in Europe that um, there's you know no way that I could stop.
0: Definitely so would it be right to talk a little bit about those experiences that you just mentioned?
1: Yeah, sure. So when I was quite a small child, I had what some people would call an out-of-body experience. Um and obviously as a child this there's, there's no kind of frame of reference for it. And I used to talk to all the people around me and it kept happening over the years. I had some psychic phenomena. And I ended up just reading all the books in every single library in that shelf, you know, the shelf that um, had all the slightly mysterious, slightly oddball things in it. And, you know, as a result of that, obviously, you kind of bump into lots of ideas, lots of different um, thoughts, magic, witchcraft, mediumship, all those kind of different subject areas. And I just kept on going you know I just wanted to know more and more and more about it and um yeah so those experiences eventually also led me to um start up conversations with people obviously that were interested in things like dream work lucid dreaming um eventually witchcraft when I was um a little bit older and um I was very lucky to find some really good teachers and inspirations along the way Um, people that pointed the way people that opened certain doorways for me Um, and um, when I moved to the UK that continued and there's so much more available here than there was where I lived as a child so many different religions so many cultures especially in London that I eventually kind of got called back I guess more to the pagan gods and witchcraft and wicca and all those kinds of things that um, was very popular about 20, 25 years ago and was therefore kind of everywhere and available. And um, I kind of continued reading. I continued um, developing some of my own practices, um, realised as the years went by that I was a polytheist and was eventually drawn more and more down that route of, of investigating all these different gods and goddesses fairy beings spirit beings spiritual realm beings of of all the different religions really um if you look at pretty much any world religion these beings exist and it just fascinates me it continues to fascinate me because there's just so many of them and when you start looking you know it's just layers after layers and so many different cultures and religions also seem to have many different things in common and um it's a melting pot, you know, with, with different cultures and different times and the worship of certain spirits and deities and beliefs and stories of them just moving around the globe. And it, it's absolutely fascinating. I, I just absolutely love the idea that people tell stories and stories evolve and they they find a way of surviving if it's about something really interesting. So I find that absolutely fascinating because it's, it's something that really definitely continues today.
0: Mm, I, I completely agree. When you were reading all these books and taking in all this information, was, was there something in particular that made you go down this path, have, have this sort of realisation about these entities and, and and polytheism as a way of, of interpreting the esoteric?
1: Um, I think... As I kind of went in deeper, you know, I I met some people that were deeply involved in a form of initiatory witchcraft when I was 18. And, you know, through them, I kind of learned more about the worship of the particular gods of that tradition. And... Eventually, that opened up more doorways because I'm, I'm somebody that questions things. So when names are named and um, spirits are invoked, I kind of want to know more. I want to know why. Why why is this happening? So I guess for me, the path to polytheism was definitely through kind of modern pagan witchcraft or Wicca. And the doorways that that opened for me um, as a teenager in my early 20s as well. And it led me to go to different events, meet many very inspirational people, very knowledgeable people. And I just continued that kind of quest for wanting to know, you know, I live in Somerset today, but I lived in Wales um, for several years as well, where there's just so many um, stories that are still alive and and certain sites that have fascinating histories um, attached to them. You've got um, sacred wells that are still frequented today. And and people will vaguely say, you know, this is a Christian site. But then if you look underneath that, then you've got something more. You've got um, stories about, you know, for example, recently I revisited one of my favourite sites in Wales. Um, Now that lockdown has been slightly eased, it's only about an hour's drive from where I live, an hour and a half, maybe. Um, it's a place called Chalich in Momusha. and uh, amongst other things there's a sacred well there which is said to kind of have healing powers especially over sight and and eye problems and it's a a very beautiful little structure in in a kind of unmarked field nearly Um, but people still going there and making offerings etc and um the site information that it must have been there since the 60s or even before it's a really old metal sign still um talks about it originally being a a site that was sacred to anu whereas today it's sacred to st anne and just around the corner you know 10 minute walk from there there's the so-called um harold stone monument which is three standing stones that are in a row, they're enormous, very smooth, very phallic. um, And one of them are leaning quite a lot. And there's this fantastic story attached to it about the Welsh magician, Jack O'Kent, who um, lives in the kind of Welsh marshes and he's, he's some kind of wizard, a little bit of like a Merlin character. And there's all these stories about him and the devil um, having bets and games and and basically getting into some kind of argument. And these particular stones is is linked to such a story where Jacko Kent and the devil is sitting on top of a mountain called the Skirit, which is near Abagaveni. And they get into an argument and they start breaking off pieces of the mountain and just throwing it to see who could throw it further. And of course Jacko Kent beats the devil, otherwise there wouldn't be um a story. But this this very similar stories um, of an old sailor and the devil in Cape Town on Table Mountain, um, where I was raised as a child, and um, in that instance, it's the devil and this old sailor having a smoking competition, <laughs> and it you know who can smoke more pipes, and uh, you know so you get these kind of similar stories all the time you know so it's obviously something to do with an old spirit up the mountain that is just kind of carried over so you know I, f- I find these things fascinating um they're quite zany but they quite often explain the landscape something about the landscape something about the history of a place and um i, I just think it makes our lives so much richer and and more interesting and we can learn you know, there's a lot of wisdom sometimes in these stories. Hmm, I, I, maybe, maybe not so much about Jack O'Kint and the devil throwing coins, but <laughs> but still.
0: <laughs> no, no, I I agree. I, I love stories where these beings chuck around mountains and they're and they're impossibly huge, and they or they just stride across a, a sea or something. It's the, mm-hmm. the richness of those stories, and and it's also the the non-literalness of them is a lot of fun. It's so fun to imagine these things happening. I mean, from your experience, were you interested in magic first and that led you to polytheism or was it the other way around or was it this, sort of the same time? I'm interested um, to know how that happened because I, I I imagine it might be the latter. But
1: um, I think it, it was, um, I, th- I think probably magic first and then polytheism. Hmm. Um, but I would say the magic helped me discover polytheism rather than the other way around because um, as you may be aware, in traditions like Wicca and many of the so-called goddess traditions today, the idea is often put forward that all goddesses is one goddess, all gods are one god, you know, all, all that kind of thing, because they all kind of merge together. And I think in some cases, definitely, you know, one being can have more than one name. Just like some of us have more than one name um, in different circumstances. I might be mum to my son and, you know, Mrs. Such-and-such to the bank and Sarita to my friends. And I've even got a couple of friends who, who've given me nicknames. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so you kind of have these different names in different roles that we have and and i imagine that the same is true for the deities and and certainly with many of the deities the names that we know them by is just titles they're descriptive titles epithets that describe some quality about the deity and you know so it's possible that that one deity has more than one name we know that happens but i i do believe that through you know experiential gnosis through actually experiencing the gods and you know, working with the different spirits and exploring them, it's it becomes pretty clear that they have different identities, different energies, different shapes, different forms, etc. And for me, that's that's something that's come with experience. Um, but pretty early on, because, again, I just wanted to know everything. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, you kind of learn through that. But it's not being a polytheist. It's not an intellectual thing it's it's very much something that you kind of have to come to realize. I guess just like with any other religion or spiritual path, you've got to have a realization and an understanding that the thing that you are pursuing or the path that you're walking is something that makes sense for you. And being a polytheist definitely makes sense to me.
0: <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I, for me, it, it was like... What you're describing is trying to understand the world in your own way.
1: Hmm. I would say, yeah, definitely.
0: And also, it's. I think it's interesting as well what you say about the names of of these beings. It's. It almost seems limiting for a god to have a just one name. I mean, I mean, why would it? <laughs> they, they seem to be for for our benefit to, yeah. to to be able to have a like a relationship with them. I suppose. <laughs>
1: yeah I, th- I think names sometimes are a little bit like having the correct email address or you know in old-fashioned terms, the correct telephone number for somebody that you're trying to contact. So I think names are important because if you tried emailing me to contact me for the show and you had the wrong email address for me, hmm. you wouldn't you wouldn't actually be reaching me. You might be lucky and reach somebody else. <laughs> who would either ignore you or let you know that you've got the wrong email address um, if you're lucky or they could impersonate me (laughs) (laughs) but um, you know I I think names are important but I think it's important also to know that there are different names that can often be applied to um, spirits and deities at different times just like there can be different names for us or different names pretty much for anything else even just um a simple household object might have more than one english name and then you know literally dozens if not hundreds of other names or variants of that name in the context of world languages or world cultures etc so i think it's it's quite a big uh, it's quite a big subject really <laughs> um mm. but for but for example the the morrigan the irish goddess the morrigan of battle sovereignty um queenship her her name the morrigan actually comes directly from um something like great queen mm. so you have these kind of very direct translations that you um have even in names you know it it sounds like a first name to us but it can be translated as great queen. Some people have even suggested that it could be nightmare queen, phantom queen, sea queen, queen of slain. But the the queen part of it is definitely the main, you know, recognisable part of the name um, Morrigan. So you you have these meanings that are just inherent and passed down. So we know that she's a queen, that she's she's a ruler, something to do with sovereignty, etc., and the stories match up with that. And you've got the same thing with with various other beings. Again, in Britain, you've got the Kaliach, which is kind of linked to the Morrigan story. She's, She's a kind of old crone figure in British mythology and very, very intriguing, um, we were talking about crossing and throwing rocks and crossing rivers and, and mountains. And she's a character that very much does that. She walks around with an apron full of stones and where she drops them, you you find a cairn, um, a pile of rocks, some old megalithic monument, something like that. There's a story of two Callias, two uh, kind of crone woman, giantesses with aprons full of rocks throwing and hurling stones at each other in Ireland, um, forming two hills in the landscape. So there's, there's a lot of of really interesting things linked to names and what they imply and, you know, just how they fit in with that kind of whole landscape because, you know, this this indication that the Kaliach is really ancient and then that the land itself is really ancient and primordial and... It kind of links in with, you know, the creation of the land, and perhaps just a way for people to explain why things are the way they are.
0: Mm. Do we know much about about the origins of these beings, that when they were first recorded or people mentioned them?
1: Mm. Yes, yeah, so so that's that's a difficult one, especially with the British um, so called deities or spirits, because. Quite often, there was no written, well, there's, there are no real written records about them in Britain. So the first mentions we often have about them is much, much later. It's um, in literature written by Christians in later um, periods. Many, um, I'm sure you've heard before, many of these ancient deities were sometimes turned into Christian saints and there's some fascinating works exploring that. I've i myself haven't really written or researched that, but certainly there's a lot of of examples of that. The may, maybe the most exact, the best known example would be Bridget and Saint Bridget.
0: Mm, I was just thinking of that. There's a little town in Cumbria called Saint B's, which is linked to Saint Bridget.
1: Yeah, so so with with a lot of these um, characters, we don't really have written records until much much later. If we're lucky, the Romans wrote something about them that that survives into the present day, or there's some inscription or something like that. But with with many of these like folkloric gods and goddesses of of the British Isles, the the records are very late, and kind of inconclusive sometimes but when, when there's a lot of mentions and a lot of stories and there's certain things that that helps indicate that we're looking at something more than just a character from folklore even if we don't really know anything about it because um, the Romans for example often used when they Made their various inscriptions and altars, what they often did is they equated local spirits to one of their gods or goddesses, which is very common for them to do. Um, they were very polytheistic, but they also found ways of just incorporating, assimilating all the deities as they went along. So they often would recognize something in the local deity and then make a comparison to the deities they were more familiar with themselves. And, of course, that really, really helps us today because um, we can know something about the deity by virtue that the Romans thought there was some kind of connection.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, likewise, um, examples where the spirit socks are described as being very large, where they described as, as having superhuman powers of some sort, and, um, Again, these things kind of help us to see that what we're dealing with is most likely a god or, you know, some significant spirit, not just another, you know, character in folklore, as it were. Um, So we've got examples of that. Um, The the Romans also very helpfully described some of the spirits specifically as gods. So they, they used... Um, titles for them as they went along which you know obviously is very 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 helpful to us because um, through that we can um, know for certain that they were considered deities back in the day as it were and you know for obvious reasons that's helpful to us to kind of just have that information to to be able to um, ascertain whether the character we're dealing with is a god or just some kind of spirit. So, you know, there's lots of little examples where, you know, you can take an example like Taliesin, for example, um, doesn't fit any of the characters of a god, whereas the Keredwin, um character from Welsh mythology, that is the kind of witch-like character brewing the, um, the filter that and accidentally gets on his finger she very much fits the descriptive ideas associated with the deity so um i think you can kind of make the differentiation like that um mm. but again a lot of a lot of the the evidence for the british deities are definitely later
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. I I love the practical nature of the Romans sort of adapting their own gods when they when they get over here. It seems like a a good thing to do rather than sort of differentiate and create create division. Just sort of assimilate them.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, uh, they they just they did that everywhere, not just in Britain, and we can find examples of the assimilation um, in Britain. Because um, I did a book about 11, I think it's 11 years ago now, called mm-hmm. The Isles of the Many Gods with David Rankin. And in there, we tried to um, bring together as many of the deities that were worshipped in the British Isles before the Middle Ages. And it was quite a journey. We, we, we don't really describe the individual deities. Instead, we just bring together like basic facts about them with the evidence for their worship in the British Isles, and there's several Egyptian deities where we know they must have come to Britain with the Romans because the Romans, of course. Also into Egypt, um, they also into Greece. They brought various Celtic deities here from the other kind of Celtic regions of um, Europe that they passed through. So they they brought a, a very wide range of deities with them, um, and you know it might just be an individual sh- soldier bringing a small icon with him or a family bringing family icons with them as they were traveling that's passed down, you know, as, as, as things were. Um, another example is the god Mithras, which is a Persian god. And he was very popular with the Roman soldiers. And we find examples of his worship in Anglesey, in London, in Northumberland. So, you know, this Persian god somehow ends up being in Britain in the first through to the, about the 5th century CE there's this evidence for things happening in his name and um, you know so the Romans were incredible in their ability to you know spread the worship of the gods and assimilate There's examples of Isis having um, a presence here and sometimes it's just a very small you know one or two little charms or an altar inscription but of course these are things that survive and you know, it's, it's it's fascinating just how much people travelled back then.
0: Mm, yeah, I I seem to remember that one thing that the Romans would do is that when they defeated a people, they would take those soldiers and move them as far away from their native land as possible to sort of prevent there being rebellions and insurrections. So that's why you would get soldiers who were from you know the Middle East up upon Hadrian's Wall, and and vice versa
1: precisely yeah yeah precisely
0: but it's a great it's a great way to spread these ideas around i suppose these it's really interesting
1: there's there's also also you know some very uh, it's kind of you know slightly speculation based on research not by me but by other scholars that um in ireland the very early tribes that went there like the um that that were the invaders into the kind of native indigenous cultures that they might've come from as far as the Aegean sea, which is, you know, between Greece and Turkey, that they were sea people that that traveled somehow all the way to Ireland. Mm -hmm. So, So, and just became the invaders became the, you know, the dominant tribes, obviously bringing different types of, um, science with them different knowledge etc but kind of eventually mixing and and becoming part of the the culture there and there's some fascinating things which i hope somebody one day will will research between the different kind of megalithic monuments in um you know thinking of places like i don't know new grange and the similarities that those buildings have with some of the european and near eastern um megalithic monuments as well which i I personally find i don't know very much about it but i I do find it very fascinating you know on a a kind of superficial level that there should be so much um similarity sometimes between these um places
0: Mm -hmm. When you were putting together the the book, The Isles of the Many Gods, I mean, did you find that there was a pattern in terms of how these deities were worshipped? Was it individual or was there organization or a mixture?
1: Yes. So we don't we don't know very much at all. What what we mm. know is what the Romans well we know a little bit about what the Romans did. And some of what we know about what the Romans did we can also ascertain from other areas where the Roman religions, etc., were better established because there's more written records, there's more inscriptions, there's more information. But we we know that the Romans certainly did build temples. There's the remains, for example, we I mentioned Mithras, the Persian god of light, um his Roman army god. He um had a temple in London which you can still visit Mm. today. And they've, they've removed it back to where it originally was. And it's, it's really lovely, really interesting, very informative and, you know, quite an eye opener. But when it comes to the kind of local indigenous deities, we only know little bits about these things in terms of what we know the the romans wrote down for us we you know it's, it's really tiny little things you know the, the maybe one of the most famous stories is that of buddhika releasing the hair potentially calling on a goddess like brigantia or the morrigan associated with that animal but also kind of victory and battle you know all those kinds of things associated with them but we know very little because they did not leave inscriptions they did not leave written word And, you know, I think sometimes when you're looking at records that have been written down by later Christian monks, and even by the Romans, you've got to remember that um, the religions and practices and culture of a culture that's been um, kind of taken over, I'm trying to be polite, (laughs) yeah, um, but invaded... (laughs) By another culture, i.e. the Romans or later on the Christians coming here, they they always tend to exaggerate, um, demonise the previous gods, the previous practices in favour of their own. And they also quite often may have misunderstood what they actually encountered. Hmm. So sometimes you've got to take that with a little pinch of salt and you've just got to kind of figure out, by looking at a wider range of practices, what may have happened. I think, with the indigenous, based on, on my understanding at least, I think with a lot of the indigenous deities that were here before the Romans, it was a very localised phenomena. Either the deities were worshipped in a, a local sense, associated maybe with a river or with a particular mountain or feature in the landscape.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you've got deities associated with particular parts of the sea Um, you know maybe a a good example would be the goddess Sabrina Um, everybody knows the name Sabrina these days from um, the very popular Netflix series and um, previously a children's series about witches and and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) That's the
0: one that's the one I remember the one with With Salem, the cat.
1: Yeah, exactly. But but I think that was much more fun, actually. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: (laughs) Great inspiration. Why doesn't my cat behave like that? (laughs) Um, um, But Sabrina was also the goddess of the River Severn, the Severn Estuary. Um, So the River Severn is uh, obviously a a big river in Britain. It kind of comes out here near Bristol into the um, Severn Estuary between Wales and, and England. And S- Sabrina is literally the river goddess after which that river is named um, and is linked by Tacitus in the first century. We know this goddess is uh, is worshipped there. And um, her name is also linked to a couple of other rivers in Britain. So she's definitely a goddess that's linked to rivers. And this possible links to another deity called Habrina. Which might come from literally the kind of root words of "abon," meaning river, um, and "fast river" um, in in some of the Welsh languages and Celtic languages. So, you know, you've you've got these ideas of of rivers and and water nymphs and stuff still in in other parts of the world. But Sabrina was, you know, a pretty major deity, and definitely today there's still people that that go and honour her or that. Um, you know, make offerings to her along that river. There's there's a bit of a revival, actually, an interest in her, I think, as paganism is maturing and people really are looking for, you know, a deeper connection to the landscape and the the so-called old gods that um, inhabit in the landscape. And, of course, in Britain, um, deities still came into Britain from... You know there's this kind of misunderstanding, I think sometimes when you talk about these subjects that people think that somehow the world became Christianized or Europe at least became Christian about two thousand years ago with the kind of clicks of a finger but of course, even in the Roman Empire, Christianity was still not the the so-called major or legal or official religion until the fourth century. And in Britain, Christianity was only starting to find its feet in the 6th century. And even later, when the Saxons and the Vikings come to Britain, we still find descriptions saying that they are the pagans that are invading and they're bringing their gods with them. Um, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a it's a very interesting subject when you start looking at it and you, you learn so much more about the kind of culture of, of the British Isles by... I don't know, but like reading about it. I mean, some people think I'm slightly nutty because you know I'm only a little bit British. Like, my grandfather was British, but um, I've and I've lived here most of my adult life. But you know, obviously, I was born somewhere else, and I've got a very mixed heritage. But I'm fascinated by these stories. Um, you know, the in the 10th century people when the Norsemen were coming here they were still bringing their deities with them because that that part of Europe had not been christianized at that time mm. it, it was still very much the kind of religions of you know that era was still very much the um the pagan gods of that region and a lot of those deities of course came to Britain as well and and we have the um We have the um, names of the days of the week today still, you know, as evidence of just how important these deities were in Britain, because um, you've got a kind of mixture of the Viking or Norse gods and the Roman gods. You've got Sunday named after Sol, um, the the god of the sun. Um, But Monday is named after Mani, the god of the moon. We've got Ter, the god of war on Tuesday, Odin um, or Woden gives his name to Wednesday, which the um, Romans linked to Mercury or Hermes. So they they kind of equated the deities like that. But so so the, the British days of the week, the English in the English language, still remember these kind of links that we have to these deities that once upon a time was so important and we're still kind of using their names when we're using the names of the days of the week today
0: mm, yeah that's a that's a really good point I am just going back to well actually one thing I want to say is that it's I think it's great to be a bit nutty <laughs> um, <laughs> but also a point you were making about how people through paganism feel like they're re-establishing a connection with nature i i I think that's a really good point too i i I think because there was that separation between humanity and nature through organized religion it has it did separate mankind from nature and i think if you look at how you know nature has been treated in the past few hundred years it it does seem connected Mm. to that so if Mm -hmm. if there's a way for people to feel more connected to the landscape around them i think that can only be a good thing
1: I think it's it's so important and I think um I mean I I spent um, more uh, very long <laughs> in Lon- in London um very actively involved in paganism and esoteric circles and it was quite an eye-opener to realise how few people ever left London and even in London, how few people actually went out to the kind of larger green spaces in London because London has some amazing green spaces, some amazing, um, you know, places like Richmond Park, for example, where you can still walk along trees and this deer and all kinds of wildlife. But very few people, I think, in the pagan movement in big cities, etc., really go and explore things. Um, I often hear of people that work with herbs, for example, and they only use the herbs that they can buy from supermarkets or from, you know, herbal suppliers if they're making healing tinctures or magical tinctures, etc. And there's such a different connection if you can actually work with the plant or just interact with it on some level, because the energy and you can also learn so much by just looking at things there's the so-called doctrine of um signatures um are you familiar with that
0: no no please tell me more
1: so the doctrine of signatures is is a very very fascinating um idea that um Dioscorides and Galen um wrote about way back in the day and the idea is that when you look at a plant then the plant itself will essentially tell you what it's good for right so That's for handy. example <laughs> yeah so it's handy so it's a bit kind of pseudoscience i i wouldn't go out there and you know um start eating plants just because <laughs> it, it happens to fit your imagination but it's very interesting because, um, mm. for example, the herb eyebright, um, which is used for eye infections and is used by medical herbalists today, the, the reason that that's said to um, work for eye infections is because the flower itself re- represents or looks a bit like a um, an eye so you've got all those kinds of things you've got lungwort that looks a bit like lungs mm. or you've got kidney beans that looks like our kidneys and happens to be good for kidney problems etc you know so so you basically look at the flower or the plant or the leaves or the roots and it represents or it looks like some kind of part of the human body and based on that they they make these um Kind of connections, so that's the doctrine of signatures in a nutshell. Obviously, Um, it's it's much easier to explain by showing, you know, showing the actual things. But Hmm. there's a whole long list of things um, that somehow. But for me, it's a little bit pseudoscience. But it's interesting to see that connection. It's interesting to observe the plants and, you know, plants that that are associated with the element of water in paganism are things that quite often need a lot of water or you know plants that I don't know are associated with fire it it often makes really interesting sounds when you burn it or it has interesting um, qualities in the way that it grows in very harsh environments etc cetera, etc cetera. so I think there's, there's something really special about learning about the kind of really precise um qualities that a plant needs to grow and i think when we connect with plants like that and even with animals like that and you know the the whole natural world we we change our attitude towards the way that we interact with the world and our environment and we change it because it's alive, not because it's some kind of distant, absurd thing out there. Because so many of us eat food from supermarkets and restaurants and stuff, but we have no idea where it comes from. It's flown in from, you know, quite absurd places sometimes for no particular reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, but pe- people don't make that connection between the thing that comes from the supermarket and the, the living object that it came from with a plant or animal you know is is it's a kind of strange disconnect i think that we have in the current culture
0: yeah definitely it's interesting you're talking about correspondences i mean another example is carrots carrots are good for your eyesight and i think that's because if you mm-hmm. if you chop a carrot and look at it it looks like a an eye so if and like an and eye, I, yeah. I i remember mm-hmm. being told that when i was a kid and I'm pretty sure, and the, the RAF pilots were encouraged to to um, eat carrots in World War Two to to improve their eyesight and, and things like that. So these do, these things do enter the mainstream.
1: They do, they do, and and then, you know, a carrot definitely does look like that pupil in your eyes, got those little lines, doesn't it? The, the the kind of I don't know what is it called, the um,
0: oh, like the iris. Know,
1: the iris and and the kind of little lines around it, you know. So whatever that's called, Did you tell I didn't do biology. <laughs> Did you eat your carrots?
0: Yeah, yeah. I've always i always liked carrots. Actually, um,
1: yeah, I think I'm okay. I'm
0: pretty sure I wasn't really a, much of a fussy eater. But but yeah, I remember I've always liked carrots. <laughs> Although I'm I'm quite short sighted, so it didn't work.
1: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, carrots are totally my favourite. Um, my favorite vegetable I think
0: mm, cool so I mean just going back to the book you wrote the Isles of the Many Gods that's a really comprehensive yeah. tome from A to Z I'm um, I'm I'm intrigued as to how you and, and David Rankin sort of put that together I mean did you did you start with Abraxas and work from there or did you take different letters each or how, how did that work
1: <laughs> no i think I think what we did is we we started a document and it was kind of out of personal interest originally we We started this book when we moved to Wales um after some years in london and um I guess I thought it would be really interesting to connect with so called local gods <laughs> mm. and um when we started looking, it became apparent that there were so many other deities that were also so we just slotted it all in and when there was quite a few, we started realising that, you know, this could make quite an interesting book to encourage people to look at it slightly different because it's not just the indigenous gods, it's also all these gods that actually were brought here hundreds, thousands of years ago by different groups of people that came and lived here. And, um, you know, we just put it into a more comprehensive um format and just continued going and I think we included about 240 but subsequent to the book being published there's there's been more um transcriptions and material available in the various Roman inscriptions and you know more material obviously has come to be available over the last decade and you know we if we did it today there'd probably be a lot more to add <laughs> as it were um But I think it's a good start and and I hope that somebody else takes it on and, you know, creates more interesting works, you know, looking at some of these deities and their worship in Britain as we, you know, continue to get more information on the, the, you know, the history of Wales, of Ireland, of Scotland, of England and of the islands and the mythology and, and, you know, just archaeological finds that obviously increase as the years go by but but they're not stored anywhere essentially you know 10 years ago we were still having to do a lot of legwork with libraries um whereas today of course you know it's, it's hard to believe but 10 years ago the internet was a thing but it wasn't quite what it is today so i imagine in another 10 or 20 years maybe somebody will find a way of, I don't know, centralising all these different archaeological finds and texts, etc. and just make it a little bit easier to um, draw it all together and um, just really look at the kind of diversity of uh, the religious history of the British Isles as well, because the, the process of bringing in new deities into Britain, of course, continues today. This is not just something that happened way back then. And and the reason we cut off at the Middle Ages is because after that, you start getting people coming in from a, a much wider range of um, countries and cultures uh, coming into the British Isles and, and the amount of deities worshipped here today added to the ones from the past. So it would probably be quite enormous with, with all the different world religions and people that have passed through the british isles in the last 500 years because travel and communication between different groups have obviously increased manifold. fold
0: hmm. i mean i another thing that i think is great about that book is that it will allow somebody to find these deities again i i feel sorry for the deities where perhaps the people that used to worship them have passed away and or even worse, mm-hmm. maybe no one worships them anymore. I'm, re- I'm reminded of American gods where gods lose their power and and end up <laughs> end up becoming mortal if people don't worship anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I always feel a bit sorry for those gods that might end up with no one worshipping them. I mean, do you? I mean, do you do you think that the deities will? They do they just sort of fall asleep when that happens, and then they get woken up when someone someone picks up your book and decides to that one of these <laughs> gods really chimes with them.
1: Well, that's a, that's a really interesting um, kind of philosophical, theological question, isn't it? <laughs> and I think the whole idea from um, American gods have really kind of entered the pagan thinking today, and and many people really um, go along with that thinking that the deities maybe die, they become mortal, etc. I I personally think that it depends. I think it really depends because I think. When a deity is closely linked to some aspect of the landscape, mm. then if that aspect of the landscape continues on, you know, I mentioned Sabrina earlier that the river, river seven is still flowing strongly. So, I imagine that the concept of Sabrina may be just change it changes because people were still people would still go on honoring the river or respecting the river um the the river seven um i i can't quite see it from where i live in grassland but i do live on a a hill and i kind of overlook towards the the seven estuary and sometimes in the summer the sun reflects in the water just before setting in the west and it's, it's quite magical but I imagine the people that live next to it and that had to work with the river, that had to um, live next to the river, made their living from the river, the various people that came through that river to trade, etc., would still have had some form of respect and reverence for the river as the seven. And the seven continues some aspect of her name. So I think Maybe it 's not so much the worship and offerings, et etc, et cetera, but I think that that reverence and respect probably continued on for quite some time um, i'm I'm reminded that, for example, in the Seven estuary, there was a tsunami um mm. about four hundred years ago that that really kind of devastated the the whole landscape um here in the Somerset levels and also on the Welsh side of it. With the, I think it was in 1607, I might be incorrect though, but it's sometimes just described as the Bristol Channel floods. But it's it's widely believed to have been a full blown tsunami. There's, there's been an, um, I think the BBC made a documentary on it that I saw some time ago. And, um, you know, so when you've got all these things, I, th- I think it just changes shape and the form of the worship changes. And like I said earlier, some of these deities also became. Christian saints or they became the demons of the new religion. So I don't think it entirely went away. Um, with some of them maybe, but then, you know, I I think the more important deities, the more important spirits, and um, the ones especially where it's linked to the landscape, I think just continued on. I think the river is going to flow and the river is going to have power, the river is going to inspire all. Regardless of whether we give her a name and make offerings to her and ask her for favors, and I'd rather suspect people continue doing that anyway. Mm. Because if you look at Catholic cultures and stuff, which is very Christian, people still make charms. They still, you know, ask for favors, etc., etc., etc. And I just, I just think it continued on in different forms.
0: Mm, yeah, That's my I mean...
1: personal opinion. <laughs>
0: No, no, I, I quite agree. I, I think with mountains as well. I mean, there's not a mountain in the world probably that doesn't have a a, a name that re- relates as in some way to to a god, or at least had a name at some point. I mean, I, I know, mm. for instance, that that um, that Mount McKinley in America is now, is now known again as Denali, which is the the First Nations name for that. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm always intrigued by. The, the you know when when civil engineering projects go through the landscape. I mean, like there aren't many times when they put a, mount, a, a tunnel through a mountain, and sadly someone's died. But you know, if you if you're disrespecting the mountain, then that's going to happen, mm-hmm. isn't it? <laughs> and
1: and I, and I yeah, I was just thinking actually, um, there is a lot of that kind of thing as well with rivers and mm. with the ocean, where I guess as people stopped worshipping the gods and making offerings at the same time it's likely that that was the time when more people would use the river use the sea etc and i i guess you know a lot of life and a lot of goods were lost in these bodies of water anyway so um yeah i th- i think you know you, you definitely have um there's different ways of looking at it. I, I think they still take their um, their sacrifices, but in different ways.
0: Mm. Yeah. So something I wanted to ask you is that if looking at the areas of the paranormal that are prominent now and have been for the last few decades on so things like Bigfoot, lake monsters and things like UFOs, when you read mm-hmm. about them, does anything jump out at you that might indicate that they're actually one of these entities that's sort of just being interpreted in a different way?
1: Well, okay. So that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, in some ways, I think, again, it depends on how you interpret something mm-hmm. because it's easy to, um, it's easy to say, well, you know, these things are superstitions and so, et cetera. But when you look at the stories of, for example, the Morrigan, then, I wrote a book also with David in 2005 called The Guises of the Morrigan, and there was a new edition of it actually that came out, I think, last year. Last year. I'm slightly kind of getting confused with, with the years at the moment, with um, this year having been quite a strange one. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's a bit kind of like, what? <laughs> where where is the year gone (laughs) what's happening um so if you look look at the stories of of the morrigan which as i said is is like the great queen she's this kind of battle figure that bestows sovereignty etc um you have the whole kind of story about how she arrives and and how you know how her story starts and the story with there is, is really kind of slightly interesting, um, if you if you think about the ideas that you know are associated with things like UFOs and um, I don't know, like like all these different you know so called conspiracies or phenomena or whatever, um. You actually have this tribe that lands with a ship on the top of a mountain,
0: right? Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> and and you could think,
1: okay, how, 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 are, why <laughs> is this fleet of ships sitting on top of a mountain?
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: and <laughs> why are they flashing lights and stuff like that? And it's it's the last thing where you would associate aliens with or you know flying saucers or anything like that because it's british folklore right yeah um (laughs) and you know so you you've got to ask sometimes when you're talking about you know i know with a lot of uh, so-called first nations or indigenous cultures of the americas but also in other parts of the world there's there's definitely some anomalies that that makes it quite hard to believe that um There wasn't something going on, you know, and even when you look at Greek mythology, you've got, you know, beings coming down from other parts, you know, of the universe and the stars being named after different gods and stuff like that. But you do have that in British mythology as well. You know, you've got these, you know, ships going on, like I said, on top of a mountain, the flashing lights and, and fire and burning and, you know, all this kind of stuff, which... It's kind of like a description of something crashing into a mountain, really, and some people surviving. Yeah. Um, you've also got, um, oh, let me think, you've got stories about the fairy folk. So the Morrigan, in particular, is described as this giantess that can shift and, you know, do all kinds of things. And if you look at other beings within the kind of fairy folk and the depictions that people create and i'm not talking about the victorian flower fairies but you know people that believe that they have encountered fairies Mm. will sometimes make drawings or you know leave descriptions of them and they often describe them in ways that are not really that different from some of the ideas that are associated with um you know so-called aliens in hollywood
0: yeah yeah definitely alien abductions and fairy abductions are very similar
1: they are incredibly similar, you know, people going away, people reappearing, people being been in strange places with strange lights and strange, you know, everything.
0: Yeah,
1: um, going a into a hill.
0: There's like They see a door in a hill and they go inside. Uh-huh. And, yeah, fascinating.
1: You know, so, so you know, I think it's, it's a big question of which is which, you know, is it fairies or is it, um, you know, aliens? And really, does it really matter? You know, um, I think when you um i think it's possible to just overthink it all you know because i think um at the end of the day is it's, there's an encounter there with something that we can't fully explain by what we are familiar with as humans today and you know you again you get that same theme going through different cultures at different times and these stories about people flying, flying machines—you know, all kinds of things—going back in, even the most, you know, people tend to think of Greek um, mythology as being very clean-cut and, you know, whatnot. But this, even the, this, this things that we can't explain, um that that is being found—you know, like the the so-called earliest um, computer. That that they found bits of and they've started putting it back together. And dates to the first century BC, and it's a mechanism that you can calculate with. And they think that it had to do with possibly um, kind of predicting the astronomical positions, eclipses, and it might have been used for astrological purposes or perhaps for navigation. Mm. But it but it's not supposed to have existed back then, you know. You, you weren't supposed to have had a mechanism by which you turn some wheel and align things, and it makes quite accurate predictions. Um, you know, so I think we sometimes, we underestimate what our ancestors were capable of, because uh, one thing that is, I think, very certain is that um, civiliz- civilizations come and go. You know, it doesn't stay the same, and A lot of knowledge is sometimes lost and the human race isn't half as, I don't know, advanced or as informed as we we think sometimes. Um, A friend of mine, um, Emily Carding, wrote a really interesting article for an anthology I edited called Both Sides of Heaven, which is a collection of essays looking at things like the origin the history magical practices of angels fallen angels demons and she wrote a piece in there about the she that touch a little bit on some of the the so-called shining ones or um the cousins and the tulich and um, tech which is the the kind of um fairy beings of, of that we find throughout celtic mythology and folklore that it's kind of a little bit strange about where do they come from and and stuff, so she really looks into that, and um, you know, I think in that particular article, the, the kind of idea that they are otherworldly beings is, is pretty clear, actually.
0: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's interesting that I suppose we live now in an era where there's our world, and then the things that we've been talking about are sort of believed to be in an other world when. The truth, I think the truth is, or it, it was at least in the era that we're talking about when these deities were first worshipped, is that I don't think there was the, that distinction. There was just the world and and it had these types of entities in it. But now we have this sort of border set up to sort of distinguish between the material and non-material almost. When, whereas perhaps the truth is that that border is non-existent. There's no border
1: that that's that's probably true, I think you know there's a lot of science at the moment looking into all kinds of things, and again, I'm not an expert in that, but um the thing that that strikes me is that these same kinds of experiences, these same kind of visions um ideas are born in different parts of the world and different times, and they keep on appearing you know they they definitely is it's like a theme running through not just British, but European internationally through mythology, where there's these beings of light. and a lot of um, First Nations stories, you've you've got the idea that different tribes come from different stars. And, you know, they strongly believe that they either had contact with those stars or that one of their ancestors are from that star. Um, So, you know, I personally think we can't really know whether that's true or not, or whether it's some... um, kind of symbolic story to explain some incomer from outside or Mm. whether it's a literal being from outer space coming down or whether it's a spiritual being that somehow was seen coming from that direction or descending and having some quality or some memory associated with 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 something you know up in the heavens above but I think it would be kind of pretty daft (laughs) for us to to kind of declare that there's no you know so-called life out there um you know because there's so many different star systems and the the universe and multiverse is so vast that i think it's pretty clear that there must be life out there somewhere and whether or not there was any kind of interaction in the past that is is somehow remembered through the stories of some of the gods, maybe not all the gods, because we know some of the gods were humans that became deified. You know, especially the Romans were incredibly um, fond of um, kind of deifying their lovers and stuff. And you've got the Emperor Hadrian that basically turns his lover and and Antinous, who um, was they were said to have been in a a homosexual relationship and he dies quite young and he literally deifies him on just his orders people start worshipping him both in the kind of you know in a quite wide area of Europe in the Greek East and Latin West and he becomes a god There's a bust of him in the museum in Athens, in the museum, the British Museum as well. Um, You know, so it was a pretty kind of serious thing, you know, the the Emperor Hadrian's lover just becoming a god. So, you know, I think in some cases we know that that was a, a man that was deified. In some cases we know that it's a river or a mountain and it's the spirit of that that river or mountain and you can you know apply different theological reasons for it but somehow they become deified or they are deities or seen as deities but then some of the stories definitely seems to have an otherworldly aspect to it that um, I think is pretty fascinating this there are many cults throughout Europe not so much in Britain that I'm aware of but certainly all over Europe there are big cults linked to the so-called meteoric stones. So, um, you know, the vital cults, such the most famous is probably that of Artemis of Ephesus. But the sacred places of Islam today, um, you've got inside the... um, uh, My brain's gone slightly fuzzy... The, uh, the, the the mecca sorry <laughs> mecca <laughs> at mecca the, the the central object at mecca is a stone that is encased in um the kaaba and that stone is said to be a meteoric stone by many people as well so so even islam seems to have this um vital stone at its center but the cult of Artemis in Ephesus, which is um, arguably one of the biggest goddess cults in the world back in the day, and certainly the only cult where the temple became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, that was quite likely um, created around a meteorite as well. The um, cult of Apollo Delphi, the, the so-called navel stone or the umphalos there, the original was said to possibly have been a vitalic stone um etc you know so so this this idea of of something coming out of the heavens and becoming divine and having stories attached to it and sometimes stories of otherworldly beings attached to it is is quite widespread you know just manifests in different ways at different times um i know that um what is that, that There's that snake that serpent um in the Amer- I think it's in America, I, I forget the name of it now, it's a very distinct shape, it's like a ridge, like a serpent ridge, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, about? yeah, um, yes. I'm trying to remember the name about it, I think, is it called just the Serpent Mound? No, it's not called the Serpent Mound. Yeah, I think they,
0: there's, a, there's a place called Serpent Mound, I think it's in Ohio.
1: Yes, and isn't that next to a meteorite site as well?
0: I think so, yeah, yeah, I, I can't be certain, but... But yeah, I think you're right,
1: you yeah, know so I, th- I think that's next to a big impact crater, like on the one side, because I remember hearing somebody that's gone to do research there on the electromagnetic impact of the actual you know the, the place where the serpent is, and you know all kinds of strange ideas around that but but actually that it, it might be slightly affected magnetic um activity in the landscape might be slightly affected because of the meteoric impact that happened an awfully long time ago. And you've got the same thing around the cult of the goddess Diana, who was arguably one of the most popular deities in Rome, who also travelled throughout and had quite a presence in the British Isles, um, especially up in Scotland, And later, a lot of uh, writers, including Shakespeare, would write about her in the context of of British mythology and British witchcraft, etc. It's a name that turns up a lot. But anyway, this goddess is a virgin huntress, a goddess of of women, protector of of wild animals, etc. She had a cult centre that was incredibly influential um, at an inland lake, which is just south of Rome, where Rome is today at a site called Nimai, and that was also a meteoric impact site, you know. So you, you've you got this kind of connection to the stars in a very literal way with some of the, um, you know, so-called pagan or ancient religions of our ancestors. So I think there, there's definitely something, it's, it's like an ongoing theme through world religions and, um, you know, not just here in Britain, but I, th- I, th- I do think that some of the fairy focus is there's a remarkable... I don't know correlation or sympathetic similarity of some sort that that does make it for, make make for very very curious debate and discussion.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it may, I guess perhaps if if this if these items are coming from the from the heavens, then it might make sense to keep a hold of them because they're divine artifacts, aren't they? I suppose.
1: The iron, the meteoric iron, is also incredibly hard. Um, a very hard material, which, if it's used for, I mean, if it was used to make um, tools with, um, it would have had um, kind of special qualities that other iron wouldn't have had, um, because meteoric iron was the only source of metal that was available, you know, way back then, because it was already usable as it were mm. so um I think I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating you know subject maybe I'll I'll get really into <laughs> <laughs> researching mete- meteors at some point um I can I can really imagine going down that route because it, it is something that I find personally very very fascinating just yeah, the um, that kind of connection between the stars and the heavens yeah um, that could
0: be I mean um What are you working on at the moment? Maybe that could be the next book.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I'm finishing a a book on the goddess Diana, on the Roman goddess Diana, and her role not only in ancient Rome, but the way in which her worship continued throughout Europe and later on how it inspired the revival of witchcraft in the West.
0: Mm, Brilliant. Well, Sarita, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Rick, for having me. It's been really interesting to talk to you.
0: So if people want to find out more about you and your work, how best do they do that?
1: Um, Well, as with many people today, I've got a website. (laughs) So they can go to www.sarita.co.uk. And for the books that I've written and also the other books that I publish through my day job as a publisher, they can visit um, www.avaloniabooks.com.
0: Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes.
1: Thank you so much, Rick.
0: You're very welcome, Sarita.
1: And thank you for the very interesting questions.
0: Oh, you're most welcome. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Talking with Sarita, you soon disabuse yourself of the idea that we've left the old gods back in the past. That's something I'm guilty of doing at times, even as someone to whom these deities make a lot of sense. They emerged in the ancient world, but are still very much with us today. If you feel like there is a connection on a personal level between yourself and the universe, then I think these beings definitely have the potential to help you understand that relationship more fully, as there are so many of them, each representing a different aspect of our world. I also think that a lot of supernatural phenomena are worth reviewing through this lens as well. Anywho. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, I definitely recommend checking out Sarita's books, which extensively cover the subjects we discussed. Please also consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. Also, sharing it on social media and following the show on Twitter really help it to grow and find new listeners. You can find some of The Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi Some Other Sphere will always be free to listen to, but the support of people like yourself is vital to its future, and for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can be part of that. If you'd like to get in touch with me at Sphere HQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.